0: Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22nd, 2024.
1: Learn more at msmuseumart.org.
0: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support.
1: Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we talk with creative Mississippians. I'm your host, Kristen Brandt, Arts Industry Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission, and today I'm talking with Patty Golden, Patty left her 25-year legal career behind to move abroad, and during her extensive travels began her new career as a full-time writer. Her mystery novels are influenced by her dedication to journaling her experiences during her travels through Eastern Europe, and her newest work of nonfiction shares about her adventures sailing across the Gulf Coast and beyond. Patty, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm Kristen Brandt with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and I'm talking to you uh, with author Patty Golden on MPB Think Radio. Thank you for joining us. Now, when we met, I call you Patty, but you publish under Jane Golden. Would you prefer to use that going forward? No, I'm fine with Patty. Okay, great. I just wanted to be sure. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, where you're from, what you studied in your early career? I'm from the coast. I was
0: born and raised there. I um, went to school, public schools, and Um, My interest at that time was, from seventh grade on, was to be a journalist. I was on the newspaper staff, and did that all the way through high school, went to college, and majored in political science and English, because I was going to be a foreign correspondent. That was what I needed to do back then. Graduated from college and found out there were really no foreign correspondents on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. That was not a real great career move. So after about a year of thinking about it, I decided I would just go to law school. I went to law school, graduated, came back to Biloxi, um, worked there for as a lawyer for 25 years, um, and then My husband was, after Katrina, my husband was offered an opportunity to be a diplomat in Eastern Europe, over the um, Eastern European region. It was a multilateral position where he would be, we would live in Bucharest, but he would be over Hungary and um, Serbia, Greece, Turkey, just Croatia, Montenegro, it was just a smorgasbord of interesting countries. And so I went with him. I left and went there. Uh,
1: what was that adjustment like, moving from Mississippi to Bucharest? It was shocking. Um, first of all, every everything
0: I thought about it was wrong. It's a very wonderful modern place. The, at least Bucharest was. The people all spoke English. They were um, they were very earnest, very hardworking. It was, it was just. It was a beautiful place to go. So I think that was the most shocking part of it. And then there's all the cultural mistakes you make. And mm-hmm. I, I did every one of them. I didn't know how to buy groceries. I didn't know how to read anything. But it was it was a, a wonderful learning experience.
1: All of the pitfalls of the American living abroad. I did every one of them. <laughs> there, <laughs> wasn't,
0: there wasn't a one mistake I didn't make. But I, um, I was fortunate because... Once I got there, we were older, we weren't young, we weren't one of the diplomat families with children. And so um, I was immersed into a different world. I was um, joined this organization called the International Women of Bucharest, and it's comprised of women from all over the world. And it's, a, it's in many capital cities with ambassadors, wives, diplomats, and, and business leaders, and just a group of really um, impressive women. And quickly, I became the president of that organization, very quickly. And um, I thought it was because they all liked me, and it really wasn't that much. They, oh, I'm sure that's they, not no, true. No, they, what they need, what they told me later is they needed an American, they needed a um a lawyer that one I should have known was an issue <laughs> and they they were um but it was fun it was a real it opened doors to me that I would have never had if I hadn't joined.
1: Are there moments from your years traveling in Eastern Europe that you feel you were able to really cement in your memory as part of your writing journey
0: Oh yeah um I was yeah there Are you asking for a specific memory? Sure,
1: a specific example would be great. Well,
0: I I would have to say the very first day I arrived there, I had never in my life not been employed. And I was there left, and my husband worked all the time, and I was left wandering around this beautiful city and the parks. The the park we lived on was 326 acres with a lake in the middle. And so I started journaling right then because I thought I'll never feel this way again, never have this complete blank slate and no stress, no deadlines to write. And so that's when I really started journaling in earnest.
1: So journaling is a major part of your research and writing process. Can you tell me a little bit more about when you started that and how that grew into writing your mystery novels? I've
0: always journaled. Um, If something hits me, something I feel like I want to remember, something I feel like is important or interesting, I tend to write about it. And that's part of the journalism background. I never stopped what I learned in those formative years. And as a lawyer, you do that. Sometimes there are things in a case that other people wouldn't write down and you realize is a pivotal and important issue.
1: You notice and and record.
0: You record it. And so what happens in my books, because I do this type of journaling, it's not a diary. It's not what I ate, where I went. It's more of a person, place, thing, image, you know, what I saw and what was there. The sensory experience. Right. And that's
1: how I write. I write like those journaling entries. Was that when you first started calling yourself a writer? When you moved to Bucharest? Yes, I think I would have to say that because that's when I started doing,
0: people would be interested in travel stories. There's the American and Bucharest story, um, obviously, wrote for um, the International Women's Bulletins and Newsletters. So I became more writing than anything else.
1: Have you been able to incorporate your past life as a lawyer into your writing endeavors?
0: I think you do. You, you don't just, um, there's a way that you think as a lawyer. That's what they do in law school. They, they change the way your brain works. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, um, I do look at things in a lawyerly sense when I write.
1: And what does that lawyerly sense kind of draw you to? Is it extra detail? Uh, is it just that kind of slightly different perspective? It's a slightly different perspective.
0: it's 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 detail, and it's also looking at it from all sides. You know, you ten, you tend to not just look at things from one side. you know you're you're kind of thinking about um, how how what you're seeing would affect people in different ways.
1: I can see how that would be very helpful, especially writing fiction, where you're having to really consider a character. and what their point of view would be and how they would act. It is. It's hugely important. It's very helpful. Do you uh, identify with your protagonists personally? I know there are some similarities between your personal history and the backstory of your protagonist from Adriatic Allure.
0: Absolutely. It's impossible to, to write um, authentically and not have your real experiences. I, to me, I... I write what I know. I don't write what I don't know. So when I write a book, every line has meaning to me, whether or not the protagonist is saying it, or it's a, obviously I'm not as cool as the protagonist, but,
1: but the protagonist has many similarities to me. Uh, are your mystery novels connected with a single protagonist or are they more meant to stand alone? They have a
0: single protagonist, but they are standalone. So they're not books that you, you know, you might want to read one and not read the others. And like you mentioned, Adriatic Galore is a very popular book. It's about Croatia. It's a real hot spot. And so that one's an easy one to read.
1: Well, tell us about your protagonists then in these mystery novels. Who are they and uh, what are their motivations? Well, she is also
0: the president of the International Women's Association. There's lots of material with that organization to add humor to a book. So that's always a backstory. She's a diplomat's spouse, and that's a backstory. The story, the backstories on my book are all truthful. If I say there's a mall on a certain street, if I say this is an event they have, if I say this is the, the politics or the culture or... or any of those items of the country, that's going to be accurate because I want people to know the accurate information about the country.
1: And these are things that you experienced and journaled about, and you use those journals as your kind of primary source material for your research. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And the murders were all made up. There are no murders in Romania. <laughs> it's a very safe
1: country. They're all made up. So. Well, uh, what about your first published book? What was that journey like, writing that uh, in a new place and kind of reimagining yourself into this new context?
0: What happens when you have an experience like I had is such an overwhelming, intense life for several years that when you come home, people don't have time to listen to your stories about where you went and what you learned, and it's so hard to... um, Romania, in particular, is really underestimated and and routinely taught people speak down about it. And I just have coming from Mississippi, it just got to me. And I just thought, I've got to tell people the true story of this beautiful place. And how do I do it? And I finally realized that wrapping it around a mystery was the way to do it. So I wrote it, the first one, really for family and friends. Those were the people I wanted to read it. And they did. But um, And then I progressed to four other areas that I felt like I wanted people to understand about. And I wrote mysteries set in each one of those.
1: By other areas, you mean other countries? Other countries. Yeah.
0: yeah. Other countries. And there were Bulgaria and um, and then, of course, Cyprus. We traveled... I traveled extensively over the region because you, Jay would drive everywhere, and I would just go with him, So, and he's over all the countries, so I mean, we were there a lot in different places, so I was able to incorporate other places I went to a lot, such as Croatia.
1: Uh, what part of a mystery novel do you have the hardest time writing? Did you... Uh, design the plot with a plan to have the butler do it, or do you let the possibilities develop through your writing and decide who the most likely culprit is once you get to know the characters a bit more intimately?
0: Each book's a little bit different. The first one, certainly, I knew what the plot would be. The second one um, was a little, I think, probably would be, as you said, that I let the book draw draw me to it. Um, the third one, I knew who the culprit would be and, and, and the fourth one. So yeah, I kind of, I kind of know who it's going to be. So, and that makes it, I think it makes it a cleaner book because I'm not putting red herrings in that make the real true mystery writer reader, you know, who says, oh, come on, you know, I'm pretty much focused. It can't be this guy. We're only
1: 10 minutes into the episode. Yeah, that's right. So, um, What types of questions do you ask yourself when you're planning a book like this, uh, these mystery novels? Well,
0: what, what, do, what do I want to tell people? And how do I tell them that? You know, I don't want to beat people up over the head with information. But what do I want to, what's the goal of the book? And the goal is never, you know, it, or to sell a bunch of books. It's what I want them to know when they leave the
1: book. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. your vehicle think of mpb need to get rid of your ride donate it by calling 877 mpb the number four car need to have some work done on your truck listen to autocorrect thursdays at 10 saturdays at 11 an mpb license plate reminds you that mpb is with you wherever you go go to your county office and ask for an mpb car tag mpb and cars better together this is an mpb think radio podcast You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kristen Brandt, Arts Industry Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. Today I'm talking with Gulf Coast-based writer Patty Golden about her life, artistic process, and her new book. What uh, precipitated your transition from mysteries to nonfiction for your newest book, A Woman's Guide to the World of Sailing, the Dreams, Realities of Cruising, Crossing, and Competitive Racing?
0: I read the four mystery novels when I was actively in Eastern Europe or had just left and I was visiting and I was there a lot. Once I left that area, your knowledge, your memories, what you know of it, it becomes cold. And so it wasn't something I would continue when I wasn't there because they wouldn't be authentic. They would be like I stayed at a Holiday Inn and wrote a book. And... I didn't want that, so I, mean, I came home and um, began the, the coast life, where everything you do is based upon the water and a life of leisure, and um, at some point, I crossed the Atlantic on a sailboat <laughs> two years ago. I crossed the Atlantic on a sailboat with four other people and my husband, and um, looking forward, that's where the book went. That's where I started writing.
1: You know, As someone who whose only experience with sailing comes from reading other people's books about it, um, how did you become involved with sailing personally? Is it something you've always done, or is that something that you kind of picked up later in life? I had done
0: a little bit of sailing growing up on the coast on people's boats. I wasn't completely um, new to it when I was in law school, but when I was in law school, um, there was a small group of people led by my roommate who went, we would take road tips to Fort Walton Yacht Club and we would race sailboats on the weekends. And while we were doing that, great summer, fun, fun summer. And while we were doing that, um, my roommate was approached by somebody who had a 56-foot trimaran and wanted to cross the... Gulf of Mexico, from Destin to Key West in August. So for us,
1: uh, non-sailing types, about how big of a vessel is that? It was 56 feet.
0: It was a big, it was a large boat. It was was significantly larger than the boat that I crossed the Atlantic on. (laughs) (laughs) But having said that, the engine was malfunctioning and the um, navigational equipment, what little it had, did not work. This was the 70s. Okay. We're doing this in the 70s. In August. And she wanted me to go. So I went. Um, the only person on the boat who knew to sail was a person who I still sail with, my husband, that I met him on that trip. But other than that part of the trip, us meeting, it was a predictably um, awful experience. You know, what you would expect it to be crossing the Gulf of Mexico in August in hurricane season.
1: Well, I was going to ask you how sailing has changed your life, but it seems like one big part of your life has already come from sailing, which is meeting your husband. It 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 it, it did. And we we ended up
0: buying the boat that we sailed on. It was a little boat, it's twenty seven foot. I mean, little for us in terms of our family, um, and from the person at Fort Walton and owned it for many years and then gradually moved up over the years. Our sole vacations, our summers were, first, you know, sailing out to the islands with the kids, and then we got where we'd sail to Pensacola and we'd sail the races. We, our boats moved up over the years. Jay and I would go, and we we'd sail in the Virgin Islands. We saw, sailed in San Diego when Dennis Connor was there in Boston. So we sailed. We began sailing much more um, globally. Then when we moved to Europe. After that stint, we began sailing in the Adriatic and the Mediterranean. And
1: Hence that's where you set one of your books as well. Yes, Adriatic Allure. Mm-hmm. Um, what experiences on the water inspired you to write this book, or can you share some stories about people you met while researching or journaling for this book?
0: The experiences I've met in many places, um, or what, in, what propelled me. I feel, I have, to write a book, I have to feel compelled to write it. It's a lot of energy, a lot of time, and a lot of effort. And this time, it's similar to the way I felt about Eastern Europe. The Mississippi Gulf Coast, the northern Gulf Coast, we have two of the oldest yacht clubs in the nation, Pastor Christian and Biloxi. They are 175 years old. The only other three in the top five, the New York, which was a few years older, the Southern Yacht Club and the Mobile Yacht Club. The four oldest yacht clubs in the nation of the top five are on the coast of Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana, this area. But yet when you tell someone internationally, it doesn't matter that I had the clothes on I had we have a nice boat we have a Hinkley Bermuda 40 doesn't matter any of that when you tell them you sail where you sail they glaze over and just glaze over like you're not Annapolis and it's always a mistake because everybody who knows me knows that I will not let them leave or be quiet until I have talked for an hour explaining all of the wonderful things about sailing on the Mississippi Gulf coast. And so that's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book because I've been everywhere and not, I mean, not everywhere. That's an exaggeration, but I've been to a good sampling of sailing around the world. You have
1: decades of experience.
0: A decade. Oh, 40 years of experience. And I'm able to, I think, um, make some judgment calls. And I, I, think that this happens to be culturally, historically, community wise, the Gulf Coast happens to be just one of the greatest places to sail.
1: I, uh, I love, the, especially with nonfiction, how uh, these kinds of books can really work to challenge people's misconceptions. Are there any misconceptions that people have about women in sailing that you work to address in this book?
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's impossible. It is A Woman's Guide to Sailing, but only a little bit. I only tweak them a little bit. Um, You know, it's just funny. It's like uh, you go out, and any man on a boat is a captain. And uh, and it's just hilarious because almost none of them are captains. Harbor
1: master will walk right past you? Well, they, they don't just, yeah, they're...
0: They're pretty nice. Most places, they're pretty nice, but the man on the boat is the captain of the boat. And I, w- I will say one thing, though. On the coast, I've seen the least amount of that. On the Mississippi coast, I've seen the least amount of that. It is um, much more so in other places.
1: I guess that's just part of our natural Southern welcoming. Yes,
0: uh, you know. I think so, too.
1: Culture. Um, what are some of the other aspects of sailing culture that you cover in the book? Well, I cover the aspect of, of family. Sailing
0: is not a difficult thing to do. It's a wonderful family experience. Your children have team. They learn um, how to work as a team. They learn how to pivot from anything bad in a hurry. Because when something goes bad on the sailboat, you don't have time to blame or whine or cry. You just fix it. And it's such a good skill for later in life that being able to pivot from something going wrong to something going well, the relaxation, just the, um, the places you go, meeting people, experiences.
1: Uh, your book is organized into sections that focus on different voyages. What trip made the biggest impression on you personally? The
0: Regatta El Sol. Can
1: that you tell is. Me a little
0: bit? The Regatta El Sol is, I think, 66 years old, maybe a little bit older. It's a race that um, began in the Southern Yacht Club, was the, um, from the Southern Yacht Club to Islam Harris, Mexico. And Now, it is raced, actually, from Pensacola to Islam Harris, Mexico. It's um, a very... Um, it's a very difficult race because you you have some conditions in the Gulf of Mexico that don't exist anywhere else, and one of them is the loop. And the loop you have to be able to cross over at least once or twice. What is the loop? The loop is a current. It is um, it is a current that runs up through um, the area between Islamoradas and um, goes and Mex- and Cuba that little area it's 150 feet 150 miles wide then goes up to about the latitude of tampa then goes back down and exits on the other side of cuba by key west in florida and then joins the great loop going around the atlantic
1: so you have to traverse the loop
0: you have and the loop is going at um i think it's two and a half knots something like that i'm not as you know sure i think it's two and a half knots at all times. And so that means if your boat's not going really fast, it's very difficult to go across it. It's just going to move you wherever it wants you to go.
1: Um, is there anything that you want people to take away from this book specifically?
0: Yes. That, um, that sailing is, I've been doing it 40 something, 45 years. It's, you can do it, you can begin it at any time. You can sail that there are lots of different types of sailing. You don't have to read the blogs and sail around the world. You can um, join your family on a trip to Isla Mujeres, Mexico. Um, it's, um, it's meant, from my standpoint, sailing is meant to be an enjoyable experience and a, and a social and a community experience. And I'm just not sure that you can get that in as many places as you can
1: right here for anyone who's interested in exploring sailing themselves where should they start they can start
0: with any yacht club I know it seems funny because yacht clubs generally are members only but they're always welcome to to walk in and um, meet people there I think they, you can eat at almost any of them you can go into them but they they They'll generally help you. Then there's also the um, Maritime Museum. There's Ocean Springs. I think they have some sailing classes. They're, they're sailing classes, and there's never a problem with just chartering. Most times, if you charter a sailboat, um, especially if you charter one on the coast, and there's another gentleman in Gulfport who charters the boats, and they'll teach you a little bit about sailing just when you go out. The biggest thing is though, the National Women's Sailing Association Convention is going to be, for the first time, in new orleans on june 8th and anybody who doesn't know how to sail or knows how to sail or wants to support women sailing this is a huge deal they are usually in places like annapolis miami and san francisco and so i'm hoping there'll be a huge turnout and it'll be fun because it's new orleans
1: and i assume you'll be there i will be there are you going to bring some signed books
0: i will bring books yes
1: um, has writing and publishing this book changed the way that you see yourself? I
0: think it, it has in the sense that I'm much more of an advocate of the sailing experience on the coast than I would have been without writing the book. I'm able, I have a voice. When I talk to people, I'm able to say, do you understand how old 175 years is? It's back... Victoria and Prince Albert I mean that's just it's a long time ago it's a lot of history a lot of tradition a lot of tradition a lot of tradition
1: um so how do you deal with the kind of emotional impact of writing something so personal uh
0: oh you're always fearful yeah <laughs> you're always fearful that somebody will um critique it and And, you know, it's your, it's my, this is all my opinions, my book. And somebody else has different ideas, but this is, that's always a fear.
1: This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app.
0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
1: A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kristen Brandt from the Mississippi Arts Commission, and I'm talking with our guest author, Patty Golden. We were talking a little bit before the break about, uh, you know, worrying about what people are going to think and the criticism that might come from putting yourself out there. What has been the toughest criticism that you've received as an author? The toughest
0: criticism... I've received has probably been from myself. (laughs) I am, I am my toughest critic. Um, And then the other ones, you know, a lot, most of the criticism is, is petty. You know, it's not really informative. The best criticism that I get is from the people who read the books for me. And then they will tell me and I trust them. They'll say, okay, this, this needs to go. That needs to go. So I think that from a standpoint, the, um, the toughest criticism I get from the people that are my friends and family that are reading it ahead of time.
1: So you have a lot of big supporters in your life. Uh, who is the biggest supporter of you when you're writing?
0: Well, obviously my husband. Uh, he is, um, he's a very good writer himself. I, th- I think he should be a writer, but um, he's, a, he's my t- best supporter.
1: Uh, Since I asked you about your toughest criticism, what has also been the best compliment that you've ever received?
0: It's not just told to me by one person. It's been told to me by several. I write first person, which doesn't always work. And it's very difficult to write in first person. But most of the people that talk about it tell me that they feel like they're walking beside me wherever they're going that I describe things in such a way and I talk about things in such a way that they just feel like they're just walking along with me looking at those monuments or those statues or these cobblestone streets and that's a great compliment.
1: And I think that you know that really shows the value of the practice of your journaling. You were able to have all of those details out there for you to call back on a, on a moment's notice when you're returning to those scenes for your fictional or nonfiction books.
0: And it makes them authentic. I mean, I, I can't remember what something looked like 10 days later, but there are times when, especially when I was in Croatia that I would just have an experience and I would run and go and just find a piece of paper that was like about a a newspaper or anything and just start scribbling on it the details that i didn't want to forget i can always fill in the years the place the road name all that but you can't fill in those other colorful details because they're you forget them
1: yeah those sensory details are so fleeting and you're always getting so much sensory input no matter where you are uh, they kind of replace each other if you don't record that.
0: Right. You get them confused. Did that happen there? That happened? Yeah. So I have to, I have to keep it written or it's not going to be correct.
1: Do you do your journaling uh, by hand or uh, do you do it on a device or kind of both, wherever you're at, depending on what you have available?
0: I do it first on scrap paper, whatever is available. Then I do it, I write it out as best I can. And then always, because I travel so much, I I got in the habit of typing it up at the airport. I have those long layovers, and I would just type up whatever journaling I have.
1: And having them typed up can be such an easy reference for you because you can zip back and find something a lot more uh, quickly than you can thumbing through a paper journal. Right. Um, Do you get a lot of journals as gifts from families and friends, like those hand-bound
0: Yes, I have a lot of them. <laughs> They're beautiful. They're beautiful, and I do enjoy them.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you are, are you kind of a strict writer, or do you um, do you do doodles and stuff to kind of help record any uh, details as well? I was just kind of curious about that process, if it's all words or if you're also kind of capturing some of the feeling in other ways. I will
0: draw. I will draw. And I have a little bit of art background, and so I I will draw some, but writing is what
1: I do. So
0: I prefer to use words.
1: Um, What process did you go through to get your book published?
0: This time, on this one, I, I was, I'm always, the first two books I was not intentional about. The second two, very intentional and this one even more so. I knew that I wanted a book that would actually get to a lot of people. And I needed a publisher to get it there. It is impossible to get an agent unless I mean just rare set of circumstances you can get an agent. And so I had to have a publisher that I felt would believe in me and invest in me. And Seaworthy Publication it's a great company, been around forever, and they do cruising guides. They do sailboats, and they do a couple of non-technical books a year. And my book is not an, a technical book. It's a story. It's a, it's a book Personal about experience Personal experience. Personal experience, yes. And so um, I contacted them and, um, and wasn't sure what to do, but then when I crossed the Atlantic, we knew, what, we knew where the plot would be. And you, have to, you still have to have a plot, even in this type of book. And so, um, so anyway, that's that's where that went.
1: What was the most and least exciting part of the publishing process for you?
0: Editing, 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 and that's the that's the hardest thing to learn is that um, you have to have amazing editors, and it's and it's a non-ending process. I mean, I could probably still go back and edit and find something, but editing makes a difference. If you want your reader to read the book, then they're going to have to not stumble.
1: It can be so hard, uh, you know, putting something down. Uh, one of my favorite writers is J.R. Tolkien, and, you know, he was editing his books up until the day he died, uh, you know, releasing new versions and changing small bits of lore. So I can only imagine when it's something so personal, you want to go back and correct everything and make it exactly how, you know, you think you remember it being.
0: You, that's true. That's true.
1: Um, how do you relax in between your writing projects? Is it mostly sailing?
0: Mostly sailing. I love to, well, yes, we love to sail. Or, or just working on a sailboat or doing stuff around the water. It's not just sailing, but we, that's my favorite form of relaxation is sailing. Who do you take on the boat? Anyone. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> sometimes we take, um, we'll charter our boats sometimes just because it's fun to, to meet new people. But any, all of our friends, family children my granddaughter goes probably the most mm-hmm. um and she's been on the ones that are the most difficult trips we took her on one trip and we were going across mobile bay and if you know mobile bay you know it's the worst place to cross in bad weather because currents are coming at you from three different ways and freighters and oil rigs and waves and, and she she. When we got across, finally she looked up and said, you know, that was epic. <laughs> so she's a pretty good little sailor now.
1: Do you ever encourage her to journal her experiences on the boats as well?
0: I buy everybody journals.
1: Oh, great. <laughs> I'm one of those people who gets them and buys and gives them. Uh, have you ever kind of uh, all recorded your own experiences on the boat and then compared to see how everything lines up? No, we haven't. But that would be a fun thing to do and a fun project. It would be an interesting exercise. And uh, kind of speaking of exercises, I understand that you also lead workshops and classes for current or aspiring writers on topics like navigating the publishing world or the art of the author book signing. Uh, What led you to this position of working to support other writers in their journeys?
0: It's a very... It's a very difficult process, and I really feel like people need to get the information from somebody who's done it and who knows it and is not trying to sell them anything or to lead them in any particular direction. I had to learn a lot early on. Right now, the biggest problem in the whole publishing industry are scammers. If you're a writer, you get as, it's like the car warranty people all day long calling you and sending you stuff. And so it's very difficult to navigate that. And I want to make sure that people don't waste their money. I want to make sure that they get their books published and that they're realistic, that they they are very realistic.
1: And they know, yeah, I think one of the biggest things is, you know, what are your expectations for your book? And where do you, think it should go and whose hands do you want it to end up in and if you don't know that then it's going to be really hard to start that process of finding the right publisher
0: well that was that was one of the things with my publisher he has international outlets he sells his book around the world his books so my book is being sold around the world you know I wanted a bigger market what is your market where do you care for it to be sold who are you who are you directing it to and I'm directed to sailors everywhere. <laughs> and so.
1: Well, it sounds like the uh, the publisher that you're working with for your newest book um is really kind of an ideal situation for you and that they're working with the people that you want to be directly connected to. Yes. Um do you have plans for future projects? I have.
0: I always say no, but if I were going to write another book, It would be about a steamboat race that occurred in the 1840s on July 4th weekend from the coast to New Orleans and all the people had spent the weekend on the coast were headed back to New Orleans to work and all the gentry and they put too much coal on one of the fires on one of the steamboats and it exploded. In the Lake Train area, right north of the Wrigley.
1: Fire on boats,
0: dangerous. Yes, very, very dangerous. But the interesting part about that whole story is that occurred right at the same time that these yacht clubs were all coming out, coming into fruition, because they were gambling on sailing at that time as well. And the America's Cup occurred that the very first one in 1851, the same time period. And they were also gambling on that one. (laughs) That was a big gambling time in history of America.
1: So you kind of see yourself going back to the fiction realm?
0: No, this would be nonfiction. Oh, this would be nonfiction. This is a true story.
1: True story. I missed that.
0: Yeah, true story.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah. So... so I'm thinking about, you know, your different kind of writing trajectories with your mystery novels and your nonfiction piece, your newest work. And through all of it, you have your journaling and you have this kind of focus on travel. And I find that fascinating because it's one of the oldest genres of fiction that we have. If you think Agatha Christie going on archaeological digs and writing about her experiences or, uh, you know, Robinson Crusoe or... I do. I I still watch anything that's Agatha Christie
0: on TV, mm-hmm. and I still read her books that I've already read before, which is just interesting because I will still not know who the killer is at the end. I mean, that's when you spend ten years.
1: Well, and when you uh, when you have such a large catalog of mysteries uh, that you've read or written, mm-hmm. you know, there's you you see the possibilities that are being set up and it can be really uh, interesting to explore, well, what if this person had done it?
0: Right. It's It's fun. It's, it's just a fun way to write,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and I do enjoy that.
1: And you really have the breadth of experience to support all of the different places in your novels, which I think is very unique. It is, and you
0: know, it's not something I started young in life. I mean, I didn't start really, I would have to say we had been to places But nothing was as much of a trajectory in that direction as moving to Europe.
1: So that experience really preceded your writing in a big way. Yes. Um, Where can readers find out more about you and your books and what you have coming up? Uh, I have um, a website, Jane Golden,
0: author. But my books... um, are being sold at Pastor Christian Books on the coast and Cat Island Books in Gulfport. We
1: love our local bookstores.
0: Yes, I do too. I do too. And uh, and they're sold really anywhere books are sold. You can get them um, on any venue that you want in any format that you want. But I do like to support our local bookstores. And even if they don't have them on the shelves, I'm sure they can order it. And Well, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listeners? No, I appreciate the uh, Mississippi Arts Commission. I appreciate being invited on your show and the support that you've given to local authors.
1: Thanks for listening to this
0: MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Our goal at Everyday Tech is to keep your technology not only working, but working for you. I'm the host, Abernanny, and you can join me and my friends Wednesday mornings at 10 on MPB Think Radio or search Everyday Tech on your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app.